previously on all of the above. Yeah, he ain't forgiven nothing in these next 11 days. I would be shocked. <laughs> I would be shocked. Even if it's just the 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 meager 10,000, I say meager because for a lot of folks, they have so much student debt, that 10,000 is almost laughable. But yeah, no, he ain't even gonna do that. Not not in these next 11 days. I would be shocked, I would be shocked. Um, I think you're right. I think it will be, the can will be kicked back down the road some more. I think that what is most likely to happen is they're gonna extend the pause rather than actually doing a major cancellation. And that there'll be some more useless negotiation and sometime next year as we get closer to the election, um, there will be a uh, an actual forgiveness of some nominal amount. So, you know, it'll be like 7,500 or, you know, or something like that. What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. We like to drop these usually in between our full episodes, although we're we're going on a run right now, a whole lot of passing periods in a row as Jeff and I, my name is Manuel Russell, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, um, adjust to the new school year and uh, handle some things. Now, it's only right, Jeff, it's only right that we start off this week's passing period by giving a heartfelt salute to Comrade Joe, the most bold, progressive, revolutionary president of at least the last two years, I guess, for ushering us into full-blown, full-blown socialism. We're there, Jeff. We're there. You wearing your red today? You got your red on? Yeah, it looks like it. I got my red on uh, <laughs> today for Comrade Joe. That's the funniest thing I've heard in quite <laughs> some time, uh, Dr. Rustin. I do got my red on today. Uh, special shout out to the homie. Aquil uh, in Minnesota. Uh, I got his uh, his shirt on today. I know this is a podcast and no one can see. So that's my awkward, uh, you can't see this because we're on the radio statement of the day. <laughs> radio, radio. So Jeff, um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but last weekend we did talk about the possibility that there would be some news in the arena of student loan debt. We saw that the deadline for um, the temporary pause was approaching, so we decided to discuss whether or not that deadline was going to be extended or whether or not there was going to be cancellation. And, of course, we weren't very, very optimistic that there would be any kind of forgiveness or cancellation at all, and that if there would be any, it'd be really small, really tiny. Um, But overall, if I do recall correctly, Neither one of us thought there was actually going to be any announcement this week about actual forgiveness of any amount, let alone, you know, whatever it ends up ended up being. We just didn't think that was going to happen. We figured there'd be another extension and this would just be be uh, kicked on down the road and all of that. So I guess we'll start with um, I just like to ask for your. I guess, reactions to the news um, that did come out and your thoughts about being so, so wrong last week and not believing in Comrade Joe to step in for um, for the people. Yeah, man, my uh, my hateration was uh, was strong last week. I will I will own that. I also uh, still maintain my hateration of uh, of Uncle Joe, but uh, or excuse me, Comrade Joe. As yes, a, indeed. Get it right. Get it right. He earned that, man. He that, earned that as the leader of the great American socialist state. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and you got to give some credit where credit is due uh, and 
something really interesting happened this week, right? Uh, we certainly both took the under last time. We're like, they ain't going to do nothing. There'll be some mealy mouth, milk toast nonsense. Right. And, you know, this is probably like it, in the, if milk toast is a spectrum between like the, the bread has fully evaporated or like dissolved into <laughs> the milk. And now what you have is like thick milk, right? Versus like, Oh, I accidentally spilled a drop of milk on my bread and it's just like mildly damp bread. This is probably like a little bit more towards the dissolved milk from from the middle point, but like but closer to the middle than the than the thick milk. Okay. That is some astute (laughs) analysis right there. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is what we do here on all the above. Uh, well we make we make very astute milk toast spectrum analyses. Uh okay, so let's run down real quick for the people what uh actually happened from the Biden administration this week. So um basically what they did was forgive a uh a significant chunk of student debt for most people who have federal student debt, but it's means tested. So uh, it's a $10,000 forgiveness for everyone who meets a certain set of criteria. If as an individual, you make under uh, $125,000 a year, or as a married couple under $250,000 a year. And of course, it's up to $10,000. So if you if you owe less than $10,000, you will only receive the forgiveness up to the amount that you owe. Um, then there's a couple more qualifiers on that in terms of means testing. So if you acquired your student debt because, um, or you acquired your student debt and you received Pell Grants, which uh, for those who don't know, Pell Grants are the the major federal financial aid program for very low income students and families. And Pell Grants, as the name suggests, are grants. They're not loans. So this is just grant money that's given to um, to low income uh, students. Uh, and really, I guess you should say it's given to students who come from low income families. And uh, if you were in that situation, which many millions of people in this country are, you can receive forgiveness of up to $20,000 for federal student loans. Okay. Um, Now, parallel to that, and I think potentially the more uh, interesting aspect of this loan forgiveness is they were making changes to the formula essentially for income-based repayment plans. So now uh, borrowers will be required to pay no more than 5% of their discretionary income monthly on undergraduate loans. Um, And that is down from what it was previously, which was 10%. So this is like a, you know, a a 50% um, cut in in what needs to be paid on those plans. Uh, And it also expands the amount of stuff in your supposed, you know, like in the formulary of your budget, your monthly budget, that's considered non-discretionary, which I think can be understood as like an adjustment to know that like, hey, rent is, you know, 50% higher than it was or whatever five years ago, or, you know, other kinds of costs are uh, things that are needs nowadays, a cell phone and other kinds of things. And so um, you have uh, a larger allowance a larger chunk of your income that's considered non-discretionary, like you, we can't expect you to pay loans out of money that you have to pay to keep a roof over your head and have internet and those kinds of things. Um, the uh, 
there is a, a real milk toast uh, provision within that, which is that guaranteeing that no borrower earning under 225% of the federal po poverty level, uh, which shockingly in this country, 225% of the federal poverty level equals out to $15 an hour because our federal minimum wage is still $7 or $7.25 or whatever it is an hour right now, which is shameful, but that's a topic for another podcast. Um, and if you are in that situation, you don't have to make a monthly payment. And then uh, a lot of very low income folks were in a weird catch 22 situation where like you have no monthly payment under the federal uh, formulas here, but your loan was still accruing interest. So even though you weren't making payments because you were, you know, too low income, your the amount you owed was still going up, right? So people were in like perpetual debtors prison, <laughs> you know, or, or not debtors prison, I guess, but you know, perpetual debt yeah. that you would never get out of. Um, and you know, and we're acknowledging you don't even have to pay because we you know you don't have enough money, but we're gonna just keep raising the amount that you owe. So they have. Uh, at least are attempting to close that loophole uh, in, in this policy. So some important stuff, definitely not like an utterly useless bill. It will help millions and millions of people. And that is a good thing. Uh, yeah. The means testing is trash. And I will stand by that till the end of time. Uh, if you are making $125,000 a year, like say many very veteran assistant principals, uh, in many places around the country, uh, you would be cut out of this student loan forgiveness. Um, and so, you know, there's an argument to be made. If you're making that amount of money, it's, you know, you're certainly not poor anywhere, but you make $125,000 a year here in LA and you want to become a homeowner, like you ain't rich either by any stretch, <laughs> you know, yeah, and if you have kids and if you're a single parent or something like that, right? Like, uh, you know, there are many places around the country where, where 125,000 might be equivalent to, you know, earning something like 60,000 or 75,000 in other parts of the country. And like, yeah, you're definitely not poor, but you're All also right. definitely not someone that we should be thinking about is like the government shouldn't be helping rich people repay their college loans. So, uh, so anyways, man, well, that's what happened. We were wrong, but we were still kind of right because Comrade Joe is milquetoast all day. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what say you, Dr. Rustin? Yeah, well, we, we certainly were wrong, but we weren't like way wrong. It's not like he came out and, you know, totally canceled student debt for everybody. Um, we we didn't think there'd be a lot. And, and I remember saying last week that the 10,000, which was what was floating around in, in the headlines prior to the official announcement, uh, you know, the rumors were that it was going to be around 10,000. And I remember saying that that's that's a pretty meager amount for a lot of folks, uh, considering all that debt that they owe. But I, you know, I certainly acknowledge that for a lot of folks, that 10,000 is a huge amount. And for some, that's that's everything. So I am certainly happy for those who are eligible for that 10,000. But I was pleasantly surprised about that 20,000 for those who are also Pell Grant recipients. So, you know, according to the administration, this is like up to 43 million uh, borrowers are, are gonna receive some kind of relief and about 20 million will have their loans fully canceled. So 20 million people who whose student loans are 
are are done basically, and I think that that's that's something to celebrate for sure. Uh, that's something to be happy about for sure. Uh, I I would have liked to see something stronger, and I hope that one day we will um, you know revisit this in a way that like helps for the, helps the other millions and millions and millions of people who are still still dealing with student loan debt. But this is a, a you know, I should have taken the over, I guess. I should have believed in Conrad Joe and taken the over on on this idea of whether or not he would uh, cancel or um, or do something about 10,000 or, or more. But, you know, I, it's it's tough, man. I mean, it's tough because th this is obviously clearly very helpful for folks. But I think about those, like you said, the assistant principals and a lot of other folks, especially in expensive to live areas like, you know, Los Angeles, New York and other places where that 125 doesn't that does not make you a, a wealthy coastal elite at all and i wish that means testing wasn't there and in thinking about the fact that obviously for all the wrong reasons this is an administration that still thinks it could find some sort of middle ground still thinks it could find some way to like bring um uh, to bridge the political divide i i kind of think like or i wonder if they had conversations about adding an element to the student loan uh, relief that would speak to that, you know, talking point about like blue collar folks and, and folks who, who, who um, so-called like, you know, uh, uh, let, let me rephrase that. I wonder if any conversation came up about teachers, uh, law enforcement officers, firefighters, social workers, folks who, who work for the public about just canceling all their loans, at least like full on. If you're a teacher, don't worry about that public uh, service loan forgiveness and, and calculating those 10 years of payments and all that stuff. Just straight up. You work in education. You work for public schools. All your debt is cleared. And, you know, law enforcement officers, I I'm sure many of them have student debt because student debt is like a feature of American life, regardless of of uh, whether or not you graduated from college or what you're doing. Like, I'm kind of surprised he didn't throw that in there because I feel like that would have been one of those like, oh, you know, the Republicans are going to be able to criticize this part. Not that I think that's a savvy political strategy because obviously Republicans are going to be mad no matter what. But in any case, yeah, I would have liked to see more full on cancellation for more folks. I did see that they um, they added a whole list of colleges of of pretty much for-profit colleges that if you went to those particular colleges, like the Art Institute, for example, your, your, all your student loans are fully forgiven. So I'm kind of curious if they considered particular careers as a way to like make this a little bit bolder, but also do it in such a way that it'd be hard for, for those right-wing folks to have their like, you know, coastal elite talking points about like, oh, these, you know, college folks who, who went off and took out all this debt to go to these colleges instead of serving in the military, or instead of working hard in, in, you know, whatever, um, in a, as a waitress or whatever. And I keep seeing these videos and seeing these, these folks online talking about these so-called hard workers who are working overtime as a waitress or working as a mechanic and doing this and that. And, and why should they have to pay for the student loans, uh, student loan debt of folks who decided to go to college and, it's like so, so obvious that they have one particular type of worker in mind. I've seen, I saw, you know, one like uh, political ad about this and they, they had a waitress in there, they had a mechanic in there and they had uh, like a construction worker in there and all three were white. And it's always like the, you know, the blue collar worker in Ohio or here and there. And they never, ever, ever acknowledge the fact that like across the country, some of the hardest freaking jobs, some of the most like, sweat inducing work is done by people of color. And it's just like this whole idea that like white blue collar folks are the, the hard workers and those who try to go and do the college thing, you know, those are the, the, the freeloaders and those are the folks who, who are afraid to get their hands dirty. It's just so disgusting, man. But one question that I certainly have 
after seeing all the reaction this week, after seeing all the you know takes on the student loan uh, forgiveness and all that, the biggest question I'm left with is why the hell did I not take out a PPP loan? Because it looks like everybody and they mama took out a PPP loan and had that forgiven. All these Congress people who had all these loans forgiven. I saw ProPublica put up a database of of uh, all the loans that were forgiven. You could you know type in different companies or type in different folks and all that and see how much was forgiven. And damn, it seems like the right play would have been to take out a PPP loan, use that to pay off your, your mortgage or your student loan or whatever, move money around, whatever, and just get that joint forgiven. Because that was a massive amount of money. Very few folks were complaining about that forgiveness, especially folks on the right. Yet here you have 10 to 20,000 for uh, folks who have student debt. And now all of a sudden that's super socialist, super radical. Why should we have to pay for that? Why should we have to pay for that? When the American people have been paying for these bailouts forever. So, yeah, man. Yeah, that's that strikes at the core hypocrisy of of uh, particularly the, the political right uh, oh, in yeah. this country. Uh, Manuel, which is which is profound, right? Which is just like the the core feature of their stance on any given topic, really, is hypocrisy. Which yep. then begs the question: Like, well, if you're if what you do is hypocrisy, are you really being hypocritical? <laughs> like, you're actually <laughs> having a great deal of integrity to that how is. you behave always. Which is like, I will do something and then accuse you of doing that thing. I will do yeah. something and say it's good. And then when you do the same thing, I will say it's bad and you're a freeloader and whatever. Right. Um, so this is the, you know, the bizarro world in which we live, where the nutty Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world gets to lecture us about, you know, how hardworking Americans are paying for our student loan for, you know, forgiveness while she got a hundred and eighty some thousand dollars in PPP loans for shady businesses that she may or may this not actually crazy. legitimately operate. 183,000. And this was just in the last couple of years, like this PPP stuff. This is just, we're just talking about back to two, uh, 2020. Damn, that's a lot of money. Man, Jeff, we should have we sh we should have taken out a PPP loan for ALTA. We should have been like, look, man, this pandemic, we can't, we can't use the studio anymore. We have to buy our own equipment. And that comes out to a total of, let's say, uh, 75,000 and just get that joint forgiven. It's crazy. It's crazy. The uh, the sad reality of that, Manuel, is that uh, to take out that PPP loan, you you need to have employees. I know. I I, I certainly could have been the one listed as an employee. I'm the I, I'm I'm sweating at the editing station as I chop up this video. Oh man, it's, it's tough, man. I we we could have made a way. We could have made it happen because I've seen looking at that database. I saw some some companies that were um, let's just say. I have questions. <laughs> I have questions. Remember, remember when that actually came into being too, and they told us it was gonna it was gonna be relief for small businesses. That's what I thought. I was like, okay, this is great. Yeah. And then what they did was instead of having the federal government distribute the funds, they gave it to banks, and so everybody started calling the banks. Now, who whose phone calls are gonna get picked up at the bank? When everybody's yeah. trying to call the bank, man, well, you, you know, it was Walmart, Costco, Burger of King, <laughs> of course, like all these lovely small businesses out here who uh, who got the, you know, because it wasn't also an, you know, an unlimited supply of money. So all these major right. corporations, you know, scooped it all up first. And then they like put more into the program and were like, well, you can't be Walmart and get a PPP loan. And then the second round was was the freaking Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. <laughs> yeah, man. 
they got it, you know? So who, you know, claim to be working class, but then somehow have like a ranch with employees or whatever kind of nonsense she got going on. So crooked to the bone. Uh, But again, topic for another podcast, I'm sure. Um, Yeah. So we, the moral of the story, man, what was we wrong uh, about Comrade Joe? And we, we need to acknowledge that. And we were absolutely right about Comrade Joe and we need to acknowledge that. So that's there you have it that's where we are i think and congratulations yeah. to those out there who are about to get that that uh burden off your back uh of these unjust criminally exploitative student loans facts facts and also remember that other nations whose education systems we celebrate as being so great and so advanced uh student loan debt isn't really a thing over there so it does not have to be the way that it is here it just does not have to be this way so Still work to do, for sure. Indeed. All right, Jeff. Well, um, I I have to ask you, because I saw um, some headlines swirling around this last week about your home city, or your home state. I guess you're, you're St. Paul, not Minneapolis. But um, I saw that they've gone full-blown reverse racism out there. And I wanted to ask you <laughs> if you could explain this to us. Why are they firing all the white folks and allowing all the people of color to hold on to their jobs, Jeff? That, uh, I don't know. I don't like the sound of that, man. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure no one likes the sound of that. Let's be real. And good thing that's not actually what's happening. The, the amount of utterly irresponsible reporting that I have seen on this story, Manuel, is like shocking true truly shocking i received multiple texts over the last couple weeks from people who uh who were like yo what's up with like what's going on with this story you guys should talk about this on the show or like what's going on with your home state man like they're just firing white people because they're white out there like i don't you know i'm all about social justice and stuff but this sounds crazy and and i'm like a whole lot of critical race theory man a whole lot of critical race theory. The I think, Manuel, your um, you know your recent statements on the show several times about the effectiveness of the the MAGA media sphere, the right wing media sphere, and its ability to control narrative in the public consciousness yeah, is like these people are extremely good at what they do. They're extremely nefarious and evil, but like, man, they 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 had everybody walking around thinking like. They just, Minneapolis Public Schools hates white people and is like out there just firing white teachers because they're white, which is both not true and also like, come on, man. Like, think about that for a second real quick. And like, there's literally nothing in America ever that that should lead you to believe that that is a story that's likely to be true, man. (laughs) That's like the most un-American thing that would have ever happened. Uh, so so I did find one national article this week that I thought actually did like a pretty responsible job of reporting on the story. And I want to give a little bit of credit because it came to us from, uh, uh, I found it on Yahoo News, but I believe it's from the, um, the 74, um, written by Mike Antonucci. Uh, and it's titled, Minneapolis Teacher Layoff Exemption Based on Race but not the way you think. And I'm like, excellent title, because that is, that's that's real. That lets people be like, oh, okay, I see what what's controversial here, but like also, 
probably the sky is falling message that we hear about they're firing all the white teachers is like just not the full story. And of course, it's not the full story. So let's let's kind of like back up a little bit. Those who uh, listen or watch every week, you probably remember that, um, you know, over the last year or so, we've had a few different guests on the show uh, from Minneapolis. We've had we had. Um, Alex Leonard um, and uh, and Ari from uh, the from Patrick Henry High School, the Community Connected Academy uh, in North Minneapolis. We had on Yusuf Abdullah, principal of that same school. Uh, we had on um, Misha and uh, uh, Makisha uh, and um, James Burnett. And James Barnett, sorry, thank you, <laughs> well, um, who uh, were are doing a bunch of work in Minnesota and in Minneapolis around recruitment and retention of teachers of color, and uh, we've gotten like some different angles on what's going on in Minneapolis. So of course, many people know there was a big teacher strike there um, earlier this year, and that one of the kind of issues that was bubbling inside of the teacher strike was the treatment of educators of color uh, within the district, particularly black educators, um, organizing to push for uh, policy in the collective bargaining agreement that would protect educators of color. So Minneapolis is, like many places around the country, a district that is extremely diverse racially, um, where students of color make up the vast majority, something like two thirds of the students in the district and yet where the staff has like the inverse racial demographics. So white folks make up about two thirds of the staff and um, whereas they make up about one third of the students. And within staff, when you look at credentialed roles in schools, teachers, counselors, et cetera, it, those, those disparities are even higher, right? They're like most of the staff of color in the district are in uncredentialed roles, are in hourly or part-time roles, right? So these are folks who are paraprofessionals, school aides, cafeteria workers, bus drivers, um, you know, uh, all the other uh, custodial workers, right? Like all the other jobs that are uh, usually non-credentialed in and around schools that allow schools to function, right? But in the classroom, representation is a huge issue there, as it is in many places around the country. And so uh, there was a lot of kind of in, uh, inward negotiating, fighting, arguing, advocacy to try to ensure that in the new collective bargaining agreement that came out of the strike, that educators of color would be protected um, so that the district could move towards having greater representation um, of educators of color and hopefully someday get to the place where there, it, the teaching force is representative of the student body and the communities that the school serves, right? Now, if you disagree with that as a motivation, you're just racist, and I don't, we don't need to talk too much about it. But like, that's, that's what they were working on, okay? <laughs> and that's what the teachers' union put into the contract that they signed with the city. Right. So this was not yeah. evil, white hating mayor of Minneapolis, you know, or city council or school board or whatever pushes their anti-white 
firing policy onto the teachers. This was the union saying, you know what? You're right. We've had historic issues um, that we need to address around racism, around educators of color uh, being represented in our district. Having a dramatic dis uh, disproportionate nature of staffing uh, compared to the student population is harmful to our students, right? And so we need to do something to address this. So this is the provision that's in the contract right here that everybody's up in arms about. It reads, if accessing a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, the district shall access the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population for the reasons provided in article blah, blah, blah above in, in the contract. Now, what that means in like regular people language, so, so first for folks who are uh, maybe not familiar with this kind of contract language, accessing is typically a term that refers to when the school has to let go of staff. Those staff are not necessarily always fired from the district, although sometimes they are laid off from the district. But um, sometimes if the overall district budget is healthy, they might remain a district employee and have to get a job at another site, but they're let go from the school site because say a particular school has fewer kids in second grade and they have to let go of a one second grade teacher or something, right? Typically the way that is done in education almost everywhere in this country is by a strict seniority policy. So whoever the, the person with the least seniority in the district and at the school is, is the first person to go. Um, now, there are, all, there are sometimes, because of legal settlements or other kinds of issues, exemptions that can be made to that where, say, a person has a specialized credential. They're the only science teacher that can teach computer science or something like that. Um, that might be considered like skipping criteria. So uh, many districts around the country have policies like that on the books um, that allows them to circumvent the last in, first out rule if there's like a compelling reason to do that. This is another provision like that, that um, a number of districts around the country have, um, have in place. Um, so first of all, this policy does not say we're firing anyone. It does not say we're firing all the white people. It also doesn't even technically say that the only way that this can be applied is through the lens of race, although it certainly was created to help address racial disparities, right? But it could be applied to do things like um, uh, correct for gender imbalances. We have, you know, very few men in the fields uh, in classroom teaching uh, historically across the country. So it could even be used, say, to like uh, try to hold on to gender diversity uh, in schools for similar reasons, right? It's helpful for kids to have male teachers and female teachers and teachers identifying of all genders. So... This is what's actually happening. The media is out here like Minneapolis hates white teachers and MAGA's going crazy. The Supreme Court is nuts and might, you know, very well uh, get involved with trying to over, you know, overturn a policy like this. But this is what's happening here, Manuel. This is what the right wing media sphere is going crazy about. Uh, it's certainly trying to do a good thing. Maybe there is some debate about, is this the right way to approach it? But, um, but, but this is what we got here, Manuel. And I am very curious to get your take on how you feel about this story. Is this the right 
way to address this issue? Is there a better way that we should be thinking about? Um, you know, do do the nutty right wingers, despite their craziness, have a point at all? Right. Well, <clears throat> so much there, Jeff. So much to discuss. And I guess, first of all, I would say, I don't know if this is the right way to necessarily uh, boost and uplift teachers of color specifically, but it's a method. It's worth a shot. I don't. I can't point to any other things that districts are doing, uh, that unions are doing specifically to really actually help defend and uplift teachers of color. So I am all for this plan. And if it doesn't or wouldn't work, um, you know, obviously there could be legal challenges down the line. Now there's a legal challenge since it hit the news. But I imagine if and when the day came where they had to actually do something um, in response to this, like when the day came that somebody actually was um, skipped over in the uh, seniority criteria and, and all that because of their um, identity, their racial identity specifically, I, I imagine at that point there'd be challenges and, and, you know, deep dive into whether or not that is right and whether or not that's helpful. But like, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened yet because this is, for one, it's a relatively new policy. Secondly, like we, I mean, it just sat there quietly for all these months I'm sure, like you said, like the the unions, you know, they they they're the ones who who backed it and um, and approved it, and it just sat there quietly because it wasn't really tearing down anything. It wasn't really disrupting anything um, until, of course, the the right wing media caught wind of it. I don't know if it's the right thing. It's a it's an effort though. It's an approach. As somebody who's been uh, pink slipped several times out here in California and um, out here in my district, like most districts, you know, there's seniority and and in some cases are skipping criteria. And the most recent time when I was pink slipped after 10 years of service in my district, um, I had seniority over all kinds of folks, but they got to skip over me because they taught AP classes. That was one of the criteria. And I've always refused to teach AP classes. If you've been a longtime listener of all the above, you know how I feel about the college board. And I simply don't want to touch those classes. I don't want to be part of that. And if you are an AP teacher, all respect to you. Uh, I know our, our students in, in many cases benefit from that and need that, but like not me. So, so I got skipped over and I was facing a layoff because of that. And then, you know, that got thrown out by a administrative law judge. But I, you know, I know this stuff is difficult when it comes down to somebody's got to go and who should it be? The seniority system, sure as hell, isn't the right answer. Like strict seniority uh, doesn't necessarily mean the best educators are sticking around. So that's not the best answer. If you're going to try to adjust it at all, policies like this make sense to me. But here to me, the biggest lesson here is what we've been saying for a very long time, which is to simply not let the right wingers control and create the narratives here. Like this sat quiet for so long until, according to this article, um, a Minnesota conservative news site in uh, two weeks ago, mid-August, ran a report about it. And from there, the whole thing blew up and the Associated Press eventually picked it up. And now it's this whole big thing. And here we have it on Yahoo News, um, courtesy of the 74 and all that. So like they won again, like some right wing conservative saw this thing, put out misinformation about it, saying that basically like teachers of color get protected and white teachers get fired. What the hell is this? This is so racist. This is so obviously racist. The Associated Press picked it up like, huh, what's this? What's going on here? And now it's everywhere. So like they won again. They got this narrative out there. The folks who come across these articles, they are not somebody who they are not folks who are going to sit back and like 
thoughtfully consider the different sides of it and be open for honest debate and discussion about whether or not this is the right policy to help underrepresented teachers remain in the classroom so that we can have a teaching force that's reflective of the students we're serving. Like they're not interested in any of that. It's just the talking point. And you could tell by looking at the 474 comments on this Yahoo News um, post of this of this story. I'm sure there's many comments on the original 74 post, but like these comments, it's just a uh, it's just a, 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 a whole list, a laundry list of all the right wing nonsense. So Tim says, racism is racism, no matter how the woke try to sugarcoat it. Tyler <laughs> si says, <laughs> oh, uh, that's, that's just such a perfect comment, man. Can we pause on that and just just soak that in? <laughs> for a, I mean, it's clearly this dude cares deeply about deeply. racial discrimination in this country. Yes. As well. And education <laughs> policy, of course. Um, <laughs> Pablo, uh, Pablo says, quote, as an African-American person, I asked, how can we want to focus our people and get mad when people want to focus on their people? Unity, right? Equality, right? I'm not quite sure what Pablo's even saying, but I'm pretty sure Pablo is not a, quote, African-American person because um, I've never met a black person who's referred to themselves as an African-American person. Person. <laughs> that part is just weird. I don't know. Um uh, I believe the, case, the language is the blacks, the blacks. <laughs> as a black. Yeah, that's, yeah. So it's just, you know, and, it, and it's, this is exactly what the original right-wing conservative news site wanted to accomplish. Fire people up, get this out there. And I can't imagine how many people have come across this on Yahoo News, ostensibly a, a, a reasonable source of news, right? So they, like, if you... If you spend your days looking only at conservative media and see stuff like this, like this is all you're ever seeing. But like for folks who don't spend their days like swimming in the conservative stuff, who might go to a Yahoo News, for example, and they come across it. Now you've amplified, you have amplified this false narrative. You've amplified this, this BS idea that like white teachers are under attack in Minneapolis. What's happened in Minneapolis? And why the hell did you do that? Like what did you accomplish? What was accomplished by even addressing this conservative news site um, attack on this policy. What has been accomplished? Nobody, nobody on the right has been led to like careful consideration of this policy and oh yeah, maybe they have a point here and this and that. All you've done is stir stuff up and amplify it. You have not changed anybody's mind, especially on the right. And all you've just, you just made a mess for no freaking reason. And you've added to the narrative that public schools are just crazy. One of these comments, let me see if I can find, oh, one of these comments from poster named um, Straight Dope says, um, quote, our fight is against capitalism, says the president of the teachers union. And that, in a nutshell, tells you why public schools need to be abolished. So like you're just adding, you're just feeding fuel to the fire for these folks that think public schools need to be abolished. Public schools need to be taken apart. That adds to the school choice stuff. That adds to all the stuff we talked about uh, from right-wingers like Chris Rufo and everybody else who, who've been making folks think that teachers are these ideologues who are indoctrinating our kids and that's why you gotta pull your kids out of the school system. You've accomplished nothing, Associated Press, by pointing to that right-wing article and, and bringing it up into the uh, more quote-unquote normal sphere of, of of media. So like, I'm so mad at that because it's happened so many freaking times over the last over the last couple of, of years. And Jeff, there's one particular comment that I need to ask you about because this comment might actually be, I don't know, uh, maybe they have, have a point here. Um, this is from poster um, Wuthering Heights and they write, 
good old race and victim narrative. I still remember time when Minneapolis was a nice place without racial issues whatsoever. Teachers should concentrate on teaching instead of promoting their political or race agenda. So Jeff, I, I really wanna know, as somebody who's familiar with the Minneapolis area, um, when, when was that time exactly when Minnesota was a nice place without racial issues whatsoever? I can only assume this person is talking about pre-colonial times. I can only assume this person is steeped in indigenous knowledge and indigenous uh, ways of knowing because <laughs> I'm quite sure ah. that probably was the only time where there weren't quote unquote racial issues or whatever. So yeah, man, talk to me. When, when was that time, Jeff? Do you remember it? I, I think, well, it reminds me of a time. I remember watching the, the video series, Eyes on a Prize, and uh, seeing a black and white video of like a small town, Mississippi, or maybe Alabama, uh, you know, city council person or mayor who was also, also happened to be on the White Citizens Council, maybe happened to have a, a large number of sheets in the house. And uh, saying things to the camera like, I don't think we have any problems with race relations around here. Our Negroes is good Negroes. There's happy Negroes around here. Everything was fine until them northern agitators started coming down here and upsetting our Negroes. Everything was fine around here. And I'm using the word Negroes, which just yeah. kind of hurts <laughs> to say because, because that's the polite way to say what these people have said. And uh, I feel like this is the 2022 version of that statement, right? It's, it's, it is laughably false on its face. It, is, it reveals in its, in its very uh, mythological painting of a, of, a of a longing for a time in the past when the oppressiveness of the system was so pervasive and so extensive that you didn't even have to bother with the inconvenience of, a, of an organized group forcing you to acknowledge their humanity and pushing for changes in policy that would lessen, not even fully alleviate, but just yeah. lessen the oppression that they're experiencing within the system. And so, you know, I, I think that is, it, it's a, in that way, Manuel, it's actually like a very beautiful comment in the sense that it offers like this we could we could screenshot this and use this in curriculum for decades to come right about like what is the nature of whiteness white privilege the yeah. uh you know how our racial hierarchy or racial caste system is structured and how privilege functions to blind you to the realities of many things that are going on around you or at least allow you the, the ability to create that mental construct for yourself that like you you don't even have to pay attention to it to the point you can dismiss things that are that are happening around you, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the reason to me that this article I was I was happy to have come across it, Manuel, is so many of the other articles didn't at all explore why was this policy being put in place in the first place? Right. What was attempting to be done here by the teachers union, by the school district with agreeing to this policy as part of the contract. Right. 
And frankly, what they were doing was acknowledging like, yeah, we've had problems with racism in our, you know, in our HR practices in the past. And we admit that our so-called race neutral policy of last in first out has disproportionate harm towards educators of color and is resulting in a mostly white teaching staff being entrenched forever. And yeah. st mostly students of color and mostly communities of color constituency that we served being forced to experience educators that don't look like them and don't share some of the same uh, cultural, racial, ethnic uh, experiences and backgrounds from them. And we have all kinds of research and just basic common sense that tells us representation in front of you in positions of authority matters, whether that's teachers or whether that's corporate executives or whether that's you know politicians or actors on TV or whatever it is, that representation matters. If you're a boy, it's helpful to see boys and men in those kinds of roles. If you're a girl, it's helpful to see girls and women in those kinds of roles. If you're black, it's helpful to see people who look like you in those kinds of roles, right? And of course, right. it's also helpful to see other people <laughs> in those kinds of roles who don't look like you and don't speak your same language and maybe came from a very different religion or background or whatever, right? But diversity and representation functioning together are extremely helpful to learning and human development. And when you have a so-called race-neutral policy that we know produces harmful outcomes, <laughs> we have to address it with a race-conscious policy, right? Um, and even that, these people are up in arms about and feeling, you know, <laughs> yeah. oppressed by when it doesn't even really affect them, <laughs> you know, but they yeah. just, the idea of that kind of change incenses them, right? And I think that tells us all we need to know about the state of affairs in this country. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's a whole lot of critical race theory happening here, uh, which obviously they, they had never heard before two years ago, and now they're incensed at that as well, all of these things. And they're just gonna be mad regardless. So it's time to stop, just stop handing the microphone or giving uh, a platform to folks who are, who just simply cannot be reasoned with. Like this is like for real shame on the Associated Press for allowing this to become, um, to enter everybody's newsfeed and um, allow it to become an established like discussion out here because they did not start from a good faith position in the first place in talking about this. And it just sat there quietly for so long. And speaking of CRT, I do want to point out that we had our open house a few nights ago for uh, our new school year. And, you know, I teach ethnic studies and I had a room full of uh, parents and caregivers and, and uh, folks who are, have interest in uh, the young people that I serve. And um, one, one particular parent, raised his hand and asked me, what role does critical race theory play in um, my curriculum and in my classes? And it was, you know, it was asked in such a way that it was you know, unclear uh, whether or not this person was coming from um, a good faith position or like, a, you know, are you one of those overly woke to you, whatever, whatever. So in any case, you know, I did what I always do uh, and what Jeff has advocated for it for a long time, which is to lean in and and stand up for for it. So, anyways, I, I explained to um, to the room that like critical race theory is a, a really important aspect of ethnic studies, particularly ethnic studies uh, within Pasadena, because we we study things like uh, housing segregation uh, throughout Southern California, things like that. And you know, I gave different examples of how uh, 
elements of CRT and, and some of the particular tenets of CRT uh, do show up in our curriculum and do help us to explore race and racism in the, the history and in the, the, the current state of the United States. And he was like, amen, that sounds right. And it was just a whole lot of head nods, whole, whole room, <laughs> whole room in agreement. And it was just like a, it just felt like a, like the whole, the whole room, all the folks there were just happy to hear that. And so many of them were happy to hear that their, their young people would be learning these things because they themselves were withheld from that um, when they were in school. And it was a room full of, of mostly people of color. And it just goes back to what I said a couple of passing periods ago, which is like when folks, especially politicians, especially like the DeSantis's of the world, when they jump in front of cameras or jump on a mic and talk about how parents are, are, uh, uh, worried about this race stuff and parents don't want their kids exposed to this and parents don't want this, parents don't mm. want that. When they say parents, they specifically mean white parents. They are not talking about parents of color. I know it because I had a room full of parents of color and other caregivers and other uh, folks with interest in their young people uh, who are in our school and in my classroom and they for sure want that CRT. They for sure want discussion and interrogation of race and racism for sure. So like when mm -hmm. those folks get out there and the folks in this comment section of this uh, article about Minnesota uh, or Minneapolis get out there and talk about how, you know, teachers need to uh, stop being like this, stop being like that, this, that, whatever, whatever, man, those, they are not speaking for, uh, for marginalized communities at all. And it's just important to continue, continue to call that out whenever somebody says, oh, parents are worried about this or parents are concerned about that. Just ask them, which parents? Which parents are you talking about? Because nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, they're not talking about parents of color for sure. So yeah, man. Yeah. Can't let them keep winning and driving these narratives, man. Damn. I, you know, I'm so happy you said that, Manuel. I think, um, I think it is like a... Uh, it's just extremely uh, powerful to to have a narrative, a counter narrative, I guess is the the phrase I'm looking for to to right. what is dominating the media landscape, which is like you said, this narrative that like, well, maybe critical race theory is harmful because we no one's teaching it in in third grade, and and so like it must be harmful to third graders. On on like that's the message from the so called left, and then the message from the right is. Communist, racist, reverse racist propaganda is, you know, teaching white kids to hate themselves and their parents. And like, that's the discussion that's being had. And it's totally missing what you just described, right? It's totally missing the, the like, right. we, first of all, we're teaching extremely rigorous critical analysis thinking to our children. Second of all, we are teaching our children to understand the world around them, right? And like, literally, I can think of Nothing in terms of content at school that's more valuable to take away from your education. You know, of course, there's also the like personal development and friendships and all that, right? But like in terms of the subject matter in school, I can think of nothing that is more important than like coming to deep understandings of the world around you and the substantive issues we have to tackle as a collective human species on, the, on this planet. And you are empowering yeah. students to enter that discussion as as agents, right, rather than just simply, you know, adrift in the discourse. Uh, so this is great learning that you're supporting and many other teachers around the country are supporting. And to see and hear stories of parents who are like, yes, I'm grateful that this is happening to my child. This is what I want for my child is so missing uh, from the national discourse and and not unintentionally so right like um so i love that you shared that i'm i'm glad 
<laughs> that you got to experience that. Not enough educators do, and I think it's a it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, and any you know any other educator that's about to start the school year, about to have their open house coming up, and and about to perhaps be confronted with similar questions. Like, listen to what Jeff's been saying this whole time, which is lean into that because um, for one, it's important to uh, stand up for sure for um, curriculum and for teaching and pedagogy that uh, helps students interrogate race and racism. And secondly, it's important to like, not allow that misinformation, that notion that CRT is like causing folks to, to causing white kids to hate themselves and their parents or whatever. It's important to not let that notion go unchecked because obviously that's not what CRT does at all. And I think <laughs> I think you should know that by now. Um, I do want to also uh, just quickly shout out that there is, you know, we had, um, speaking of race and racism and segregation, um, we did have a guest on the show uh, early on, I want to say like two or three years ago, uh, Pablo Morales, who's a filmmaker who made an excellent documentary about segregation at the high school that I work at, which is uh, John Muir High School, and sort of the, the, the history of segregation within the school district, but also specifically at our high school, which um, once was in incredibly uh, diverse racially and then was not so diverse and is still uh, struggling with a lack of diversity. We're very much a predominantly black and brown school um, and it didn't used to be that way. So the documentary kind of uh, unpacks some of the things that happened, some of the factors that led to the segregation of the school. Anyways, I'm bringing it up now because uh, it got picked up by PBS. So it will be airing on PBS uh, sometime soon. I don't remember the exact time when or the exact date when it'll be. Actually, it'll premiere on September 8th. Uh, if you live in Southern California, PBS SoCal, September 8th, um, 8.30 p.m. But if you live in the area, if you live around Southern California and want to see a special screening of this particular documentary, uh, which has been re-edited for uh, the time, uh, for the one hour uh, time length of this uh, PBS broadcast, there are there is a free screening at John Muir High School on September 3rd, which is the Saturday night of uh, Labor Day weekend. So if you're in the area and you're interested, we'll put the link underneath this podcast episode so that you could uh, register to go. It's free, uh, but there's a, a link for you to register so that you could go and check it out. I'll probably be in the house, probably. So if I am in the house and you're in the house, definitely uh, say what's up to me. If you don't know what I look like, because you only listen to Passing Period and you've never checked out the video episode, uh, head over to our YouTube channel and um, subscribe while you're over there so that... Uh, you know, we get another subscriber over there. But yeah, man, uh, excellent, excellent film. And yeah, it's if you're in the area, if you're not doing anything Saturday night, come come check out this free screening. It should be uh, pretty dope. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating film, Manuel. Um, and, and congrats to uh, Pablo and his team that, that put the film together. Uh, really glad it's getting some shine. As, as someone who is... Uh, is a newer, um, still a newer resident of, uh, of Pasadena and newer to understanding the history and things of, you know, of Pasadena is a really interesting, like, microcosm of America's racial <laughs> tapestry, if you will. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, and like the, the connections between big stories around race that everybody knows about, like Rodney King, uh, you know, and like this relatively small city in the, in the northeast corner of LA, um, you know, it's just, it's fascinating. So I think folks will enjoy it. Um, one one last quick thing, Manuel, I feel like I owe yeah. uh, some of our former guests an apology because I was I was getting excited talking about our former guests from Minneapolis earlier in the episode. <laughs> and I just, I just messed up like everybody's names 
while I was stumbling. So let me let me say again, our wonderful guest that we had from Minneapolis on the show over the last like year and a half or so included, uh, I think first it was Alex Leonard, um, who's a, a homie from way back in the day, um, and Ariel Roca, who are um, teachers and leaders of the Community Connected Academy at Patrick Henry High School. So props to them. We had on the principal of Patrick Henry High School, Yusuf Abdullah. And then we had on um, two just really brilliant folks um, who are leading various educator uh, efforts to diversify the teacher force in the state of Minnesota, Makisha Nation and James Barnett. Um, so a, a second thanks to them for appearing on the show. And if you think, hey, that sounds interesting, a lot of cool stuff happening in Minneapolis, you are correct. And I encourage you to go to our uh, our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash all the above and look up those episodes. Um, or of course, right on your podcast app that you may be listening on right now, just scroll down um, and look for those episodes. So um, yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Check it out. Check out all that, uh, I guess, quote unquote, old content that is evergreen because uh, it's been a while since we've had a full episode and it might still be a while before we have a full video episode. But just a reminder, man, that YouTube channel, all of our episodes going back all the way to the beginning, all those stories, all those topics, all those super dope guests, all those issues are still very, very much uh, at the forefront of um, our efforts to continue to build a humanizing education space for for all of our young ones and help usher in hopefully a, a better and brighter future for everybody. So definitely check out all that uh, previous content. And with that, I think I think we're about out of here for for this week. So folks, like, subscribe, review, all that good stuff. If you don't remember if you've ever written a review for us, because like you've been listening for a long time, uh, just double check and go ahead and just write one anyways. See what happens, because we could definitely benefit uh, greatly from that continued support. So all that being said, we love y'all. Thank you for checking us out this week on Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. And we will see you about a week from now. All right, so now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class.